This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 139. We will be interviewing Michelle King, who is the author of the book, The Fix, which is about fixing the invisible barriers to women's advancement at work. Uh, She's also the director of inclusion at Netflix. So we are really looking forward to talking with her. I'm sitting here doing this introduction with Henry on my lap. So if you hear any baby noises, that's uh, we're making sure he is fed before we do the interview itself. <laughs> that's what we are. That's how we roll around here. So yeah, we're we're looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm really excited about the topic about the inclusion and all that. I think I told Laura this is going to be my opportunity to share the happy news that I got a. I don't know. It's not a promotion. It's just sort of an opportunity that I'm going to get to serve on this leadership board with our, in our organization. And the funny part is that until last year, there were no women on it. So I was moved to do this after I saw a picture in sort of our annual yearbook with this lovely official distinguished looking physician leadership council. And it was like 15 people and they were all men. And it was just like, no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, so. that's that's the kind of picture like you 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 can't put out publicly anymore. Like one would 
think. But I mean, obviously people do. There's a law firm a couple of years ago that published their picture of their new partners, which which had a similar um, <laughs> similar breakdown to to your uh, your physician leadership group, and and I mean they were pilloried on social media for this. So you know, it's, if you are in an organization where where that is the case, don't don't publish that photo. Just so you know. <laughs> So I may have only gotten the position because I'm going to add some diversity to the photo, but that's okay. I'm, it's actually I'm in, like, in your area of expertise, I mean, of, of this as well, too. So. Yes, I am the chairperson of the Physician Wellness Committee, which really is all about work-life integration and quality of life and all things you guys know I'm extremely passionate about anyway. So I'm excited. And I'm also excited because our guest today works at Netflix, and I love Netflix. <laughs> Netflix could be a love of the week. We'll get to that. Um, but you, you guys have been Netflix subscribers for like a long time, like DVD in the mail subscribers. Yeah, right? yeah, like we had a program where you could get, I think, three DVDs at once and then we would switch them out. And I have fond memories of us um, renting Citizen Kane for at least six months. <laughs> like it sat on there because sh- the, the format really led itself to aspirational um, selections because you're like, oh, yes, future me will want to watch Citizen Kane, of course. Um, and then I just like remember it sitting there but luckily we were in we were able to get like three discs at once so it wasn't holding us back we just shuffle out the other two and we've continued to be subscribers through its current um, iteration which is really cool and that Netflix has kind of reinvented itself along with the times and I've heard some interesting stories about how the company did that so I'm very excited to talk to this person but I'm I'm still a very happy happy Netflix subscriber Well, we are new Netflix subscribers. We were not Netflix subscribers forever. Um, And then Jasper asked for it for Christmas. So he is has the account now. I mean, I guess the whole family does, but uh, he's the one who uses it for the most part. And he he seems to be a happy customer as well. So there there we go. (laughs) We recently um, we've been upgrading our, our electronic systems. We we had to buy a new television because one child uh, may have knocked it over. Fortunately, not in a way that injured anybody because uh, it was one of these old TVs that, that is heavier than they are now. It's good that you have enough children that you can say that. And it's like, which child you know, did it's, it? It's anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, So that had to be replaced. But I was joking about how fast this replacement happened. Like we have, we have things in this house that have not been replaced forever. Right. And the, the TV that had the Xbox on it broke and it was like replaced inside 72 hours. You know, <laughs> I thought you were going to say like 90 minutes, <laughs> 90 minutes. Well, there, there was there was hunting for a replacement like within 90 minutes of it being clear that this thing was broken and not coming back to life. <laughs> and uh, it may be that that another member of this family plays a lot of Fortnite. And and not the member you may think. Uh, let's just <laughs> there may be an adult is it member. You? No, it's it's not me. But it, there there is definitely an adult member um, who shall be named nameless um, who awesome. who has been playing that. So yes, the uh, that is the TV was fixed quickly. All right. Well, if, with that, let's let's get to our interview. Well, Sarah and I are delighted to welcome Michelle King to Best of Both Worlds. She is the director of inclusion at Netflix and the author of the new book. The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back at Work. And of course, we all want to overcome those invisible barriers that are holding women back at work. So, uh, Michelle, could you talk a little bit about your career journey and your family? 
Sure. Um, I started out my career, I did did my first uh, degree in industrial organizational psychology, which for people who don't know is basically business psychology. So you look at sort of the way organizations work and started out a career in that and then sort of halfway through decided that, you know what, I'd finished my master's, I was working in an organization and I wanted to be a journalist. Um, So I went back to school and did a postgraduate degree in journalism and worked as a TV reporter. Not a lot of people know that. So I was a TV reporter in New Zealand, and you might be able to find some old video footage. It would be really embarrassing. And um, after I did that, I then decided that, you know what, I actually do enjoy industrial org sites, so I might go back into it and started working in human resources. And actually communications and human resources are quite similar fields, so it was, it was quite a useful um, to have both skill sets. And, and then I did my uh, MBA, and was working in a range of different industries, a lot of hard industries, manufacturing, oil and gas, um, you know, quite a range of financial services. So I have quite a sort of strong private sector background, doing a lot of diversity and inclusion work because it's quite integrated into human resources. And then um, as I started, after my second child, so I had my daughter and then I had my son, uh, something happens when you become a mum and you really start to think about you know, if you're going to spend that much time away from your kids, it needs to be something that not only is worthwhile financially, but also has meaning. And, you know, that's one of the things we find in the differentiator between men and women's careers. Both want meaning, but women want it in a different way, right? We want to contribute um, and sort of add back to our communities. And so I found that quite a significant shift for me after my, my second child. And I really started to think about the work that I was doing and the impact it was having on women. And wanting to understand the challenges that I'd faced in my career. So I started researching even before I'd signed on to my PhD, before I'd done anything. You know, I'm a researcher at heart. And so I spent a lot of time trying to understand the issue and decided that that's what I wanted to do. So I set out, embarked on my PhD and through a long process started working at UN Women. And I was there for four years. And um, that role was a range of roles from diversity through to leading this big coalition very, very exciting work and managed to sort of carve out a whole space for myself in the in the gender and organization space. And so then that kind of brought me into Netflix and where I am today. And it was about sort of three quarters of the way through my research with my PhD that I realized I needed to share the story with women. So that's what prompted me then to write the book. That's great. And in your book, you talk about that a lot of this conversation about women in the workplace has amounted to what you call this woman fixing epidemic, right? So what do you mean by the the woman fixing epidemic? Yes, yeah, so look, I got to be honest. I um, When I started this work was back in like 2010, and I think it was at the peak of Lean In. And it's a bit embarrassing now, but I was definitely somebody who sort of bought into the whole Lean In school of thought before I'd sort of undertaken this research. So when I started the research, I was really looking for, you know, what could I do to fix myself? So what is it that I need to do more of? Um, you know, how could I lean in? What is what is it that I could do to ensure that I advance at the same rate as my male colleagues? And there's one male colleague in particular who always kind of bugged me because he didn't have a master's degree. He had half the experience I had. His performance ratings were pretty average. And he just consistently would get the bigger, better jobs. And like here I was with two master's degrees, you know, and that postgraduate qualification, I had like really strong performance ratings, way more years of experience than him. And I just was, I was dumbfounded. And so I had to find this answer. So in researching everything, there came this point, I'll never forget it. I had all the journal articles sort of around me on the table. And I remember just looking at them thinking, oh my God, this is unbelievable. 
all these articles are telling me how capable women are. And it's all the things that, you know, might be hard to believe at first, the things like networking. I mean, that's one of the go-tos for women. We don't network enough or speaking up and asserting ourselves when it comes to things like pay. Women do that more than men. They just are less likely to get, you know, the pay increase. And, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, but consistently I would go through it. And then I found these incredible, what we call meta-analysis, so studies of study that find that, you know, on average, women just are better leaders in terms of how we go about leading and managing others and collaborating and solving problems. So across the board, I was sort of like dumbfounded. And then it led me to want to understand, well, if it's not women, what is it? And that's kind of what led to the book where it became very clear that organizations are just not designed for difference and they're sort of set up in a way that was really for this sort of outdated 1950s Don Draper type of man, right, you know. And it, that it, they're just hardwired for somebody that is really the opposite of what women are and how women work. And so that's what creates a lot of challenges for women and anybody that doesn't conform to this outdated ideal. Yeah. And in your book, you talk about sort of the three different phases of, of a woman's career. I wonder if you could talk really briefly about what those are as we think about sort of our long-term career management. Yeah. So again, if we think of the Don Draper ideal, right, which is your white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied male, but importantly, someone who's willing to gauge in sort of dominant, aggressive, assertive, competitive behaviors to get ahead, um, who's sort of free from dependent care responsibilities. When you think of that being the ideal in workplaces, a typical career for that kind of ideal is really a linear one, right? You go to work, you assert yourself, you play the political game, and it helps you climb up and you progress up and up the hierarchy to the point at which you're the leader and then everybody follows suit. So that is the model that organizations have really been designed for. But what's interesting is when you look at women's careers, they're fundamentally different from men's. And the reason for that is women have to integrate work life and home life and also organizations were never really designed for women and women's needs. So what we find is, you know, when women start out in their careers, it's called the idealistic achievement phase, right? And this has been sort of tested by two different researchers and they found there really are these three phases, right? So when women start out, we're really idealistic about what we can achieve in workplaces. We believe in what I call the meritocracy myth. And they start out thinking, you know, I alone can achieve, I alone can push through, I alone can succeed, it'll be enough, right? And because that's what we're promised early on. So we're told in school, you work hard and you will succeed. And that's simply not the case when you hit organizations where, you know, women encounter a barrier, like from the moment they get into organizations where they have to try and fit this ideal. And that ideal standard does not match the standard society holds for how women are meant to behave. So when women assert themselves in the way that Don Draper might to be seen as like a leader, because Don's the ideal for leaders, they're penalized, right? Because society says women need to not do that. They need to be meek and mild and, you know, very sort of more maternal. So right from the get-go, women face a lot of challenges with this. And um, so that's really the idealistic phase. And then what happens is the more barriers women encounter over the course of their career, they start to sort of realize and become aware of inequality. And this shows up in a myriad of ways, but sort of one of the most amazing statistics on it is that you know, within the first three years of working life, there's a Bain study on this, women's confidence in their ability to succeed to senior level roles, sort of more than halves. And it's, and we see that playing out because when you confront these barriers on a daily basis, you start to question like, actually, maybe I can't get there and maybe it is me. 
Um, and so there's this whole internalization of the barriers that happen quite early on in women's careers. And then that comes like the perfect storm, which is the endurance phase, um, which any mother will be nodding. Um, and, you know, you don't even have to be a mother to experience this, but what really happens at the midpoint in women's careers is now, you know, they've seen enough. They're starting to realize actually maybe workplaces don't work for everybody in the same way. And there are these challenges that can't maybe put the words to them, but they, they starting to see inequality and inequality moments. And it's at that point that women normally approach sort of what management level typically. Um, and it's also coincides with the same time that women are about to have children. And it's, I always say this, you know, it's one thing in organizations to let women advance, but up until the point that they're actually leading is when organizations really struggle with the idea of, of sort of women leading in a way that doesn't fit Don Draper. And if you add on being a mother, where it's really evident that women are like deviating from the standard, right? Like literally the opposite of the Don Draper ideal, that creates a lot of challenges for women. And so if women endure this and they get through this phase, the endurance phase, and they survive all the challenges that come with that, and the barriers don't go away, right? They just accumulate throughout your career. You then get to the final stage, which is where most women typically lead later on in their careers. And you know, this is called the contribution phase. And the reason for that, it's a thing I think makes women so incredible, is that despite going through all of that, right, despite having to go to work and not just do your job, but achieve the impossible by overcoming barrier after barrier, women then want to contribute back and make it easier for the next generation of women, which is why that later phase is called the contribution phase. Women want that meaning and that, that opportunity to contribute. So those are the three phases and truly why I think women are remarkable. Yes. Well, well, we'll get to more of that in just a minute. We take a quick ad break. All right. So we're back with Michelle King, who is the author of The Fix. We're talking about the invisible barriers that women face at work. And we just talked through the three phases that women go through. I think we have a lot of our listeners in the endurance phase um, who are you know, raising young children, sort of middle management. And one of the challenges, I mean, we, we all know there are all kinds of systematic barriers out there. One of the reasons literature is aimed at individuals, of course, is that it's easier to fix yourself than to fix the world, um, or at least to try to fix yourself than to fix the world. But we do have a lot of listeners who are in management. So, you know, you're not necessarily leading the company, but if you are in middle management, what can people in those roles do? to contribute to more equitable organizations. I'm really curious what you are training, say, managers at Netflix to do to make a more inclusive and, you know, environment that is friendly to women, of course, but to people with any sort of difference. Yeah, so look, I mean, I can't speak to Netflix specifically, but I can speak generally in terms of what I think leaders should do. So on the whole, you know, there's a whole chapter on this. Um, it's probably, I think, the most valuable chapter in the whole book because it's really the, the whole point of writing the book is this call to leaders to lead, right? So equality for me is this invitation for leaders to lead. And it doesn't matter what level you're at in the organization. Quite frankly, it doesn't even matter if the CEO is bought into it. Every leader within their team can practice equality, right? And it starts with awareness. And so I always laugh because I go to these conferences and I see women sitting there with their notepads and pens and they're wanting like the five actions they can take to advance equality. And if it was that simple, you know, we would have solved this a long time ago. But I think the real work and the hard work and the uncomfortable work and the bit people don't like to hear, but it's true, is the awareness bit. So how many leaders today in organizations understand how inequality works? 
how many leaders are aware of the fact that there is this embedded ideal and prototype and the challenges that creates for women and how, you know, actually living up to that prototype affords them a certain privilege. Whether you're a white woman, you have your whiteness in common with Don Draper. If you're a white, you know, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied male, you literally look and fit like the prototype, right? And we live up to it by engaging in the behaviors that I talked about. So, you know, those dominant, assertive, aggressive, exclusionary behaviors. And so I think it's really important to become aware of, hey, so what is my identity? How does that fit the prototype? How does that afford me certain privilege? And what challenges does that then create for everybody who doesn't fit? And so I always say every manager and every person is listening to this. It's not just manager specific, but managers play a key role. And I'll get to why in a minute. Can spend their privilege, right? And you spend it by understanding how this particular ideal and the privilege you have creates barriers to other people's advancement. So once you have that awareness of yourself and kind of the privilege you have and what you're bringing to the table and how that creates challenges for others, you then really need to think about, okay, so how does this show up in my workplace? So, you know, in my book, I've identified 17 barriers to women's advancement. I talk about how these differ for different women, how they show up, you know, throughout women's careers. Get to know the barriers, know them to name them. So if you're a manager and you're sitting there and you're spotting, you know, a negative gender norm, I give an example in my book where my boss told me to wash the dishes at work, right? Like that is an opportunity for a leader to step in and say, hey, no, you know, this is not what we do because you know instantly that this is a barrier that women encounter and so you know what to do. And so I think it's it's every leader has a has a role to play in ensuring that they know what the barriers are so that they can take action in the moment. And I talk about it in terms of managing inequality moments. Like there's this idea that inequality is like some, you know, ambiguous thing that sits out there the reality is it's a lived experience so it shows up every day when you're in your workplace there are those moments where culture is either made or it's not and it is every leader's responsibility to call those moments out and you're only going to know those moments if you learn them so understanding is key and then the final bit is really making it a practice so you know i talk about the importance of don draper and the importance of leaders in the book leaders set the standards for what good looks like right through their silence through what they reward, through what they encourage. They determine what the culture is, right? They determine what behaviors get accepted and what behaviors don't. And so it's then a quality employee's experience in workplaces is directly a result of leadership, 100%. And so we need leaders to really every day, not only through their own behaviors, but through the behaviors they reward and reinforce, set the standard for what good looks like when it comes to inclusion, when it comes to equality, when it comes to a sense of belonging. Yeah. And one of the things I enjoyed reading about in in the book is you mentioned, you know, challenging these inequality moments, but there's different ways to challenge these moments. And one of the things you mentioned your husband doing is asking questions. So when he would spot an inequality moment, he he would sort of address it in, in the form of a question. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm laughing because I always pick on my poor husband in the book. But, I mean, he's like, you know, he did not sign on for this feminist journey. He's come a really long way. He is your typical, you know, he's basically Don, right? And so I've taken him on his inequality journey, sort of a feminist in training. And it's actually really good for me. It's been really insightful to learn about the barriers that men face in organizations, right? It's not something I knew. um, And, you know, it's a whole different story as to how I became aware of that. But in part, it's been through like trying to understand my husband's perspective on some of the stuff. And I mean, I think it's a great secret about gender inequality is it creates challenges for men, right? So it's a great story because ultimately we all serve to benefit from tackling it. So that's sort of the why it's important for men to take action. How men take action, 
is like all of us. We need to be allies. And that means in the moment when these issues happen, you sort of speak up. And one way to speak up that I talk about in the book is asking why. So for example, my husband was in sort of a meeting with his leader and they were talking about a woman on the team who was looking at, you know, going for sort of a senior a senior leader role. And she was struggling with, you know, getting put forward for it because she worked on a reduced schedule to try and manage sort of her responsibilities at home and work. And my husband's boss said, you know, I just don't think she's she's right for it. You know, she works on that reduced, she can't be serious about her career. She's got that reduced work schedule. I think, you know, we should we should probably consider somebody else for that role. And because my husband's trained, he knew in the moment to simply ask why. So he said, well, well, why do you think that? Like sort of what, you know, what evidence do we have for that? Why, why, why are you making that assumption? Um, and as they unpacked it, it was just the leader's bias, right, around that she couldn't do it. And she got promoted. And she'll never know that it was on the back of like his advocacy. But I think those small moments like where it plays out, it's sometimes hard to know what to say. And I think when you ask why, you're actually putting the onus on the individual with their biases to sort of check themselves. So it's a really clever way to to turn it around. I love that. And because questions are less threatening, too. I mean, it's just, you know, why? Why? I'm just asking a question. I'm curious. Why? <laughs> you know, let's yeah. let's get into this. You know, obviously, the, the question of what people are managing on the home front comes into this, too, um, that one of the reasons that Don Draper can be the ideal worker is he doesn't have any dependent care responsibility. Um, and that's, you know, something that many women are dealing with. And you, you talk a little bit about this idea of bread sharing rather than bread winning. Uh, I'm curious what, what that means to you, what it looks and what it looks like for you. I love the idea of you and your husband having whiteboard conversations where you, you write things on the whiteboard as, as they come up. So talk a little bit about what that looks like in your house. You know, it's so tough. Like this is a really tough question because I know a lot of women struggle with this. I know that for a lot of women, this is the real reason it's hard to advance at work. It's hard to advance their careers. Because, you know, women are not valued at work in the same way as men. But I think in some households, women's careers are also not valued in the same way as their husbands or partners or, you know, whoever they're sort of living with. And so I think that's the challenge is, you know, do we value women's careers? Do we value women's ambitions? Do we value women's dreams? The reality is we don't, right? And so there's this process where in households, because we've been conditioned by society to see men as the breadwinner and value men's careers above everything else, you sort of have to practice equality at home, right? It sort of begins at home and it starts with kind of resetting this idea that, hey, my dreams, my ambitions, my career is just as valuable as yours. So let's treat it that way, which means kind of sharing out the activities that take away from that or the activities that require sharing. So it's the whole idea of being a bread sharer rather than seeing there's one breadwinner in a family. And what it means in practice is trying to manage the mental and emotional load. So studies find, you know, with mental load, it's your to-do list, right? You mentally, the number of items that you have to think about. And I think there was that Bright Horizon study that shows at any one time, men and women have about 150 items on their to-do list, right? So it's ridiculous. Like most of us are walking around with a lot of activity and that can cause a lot of stress. But interestingly, the thing that I talk about in the book that's kind of new is this idea of emotional load. So not only do women have sort of a disproportionate number of things to do in terms of managing the household and sort of children's schedules and everything that comes with that, but women also manage their children's emotional needs. And that creates a huge amount of stress. And if I think about it in my household, my husband would, is very functional, right? So he's great at like doing functional things and picking up things and managing tasks. 
he's not so great at managing some of the kids' emotional needs. So I'm the one who spends like half an hour every night with my daughter in bed talking about her day and hearing about who she might be having an argument with and, you know, the challenges that's creating for her. And so you actually have to manage both of these. And that requires, in my household at least, that we talk about it. So, you know, while it might seem that he has a disproportionate number of admin tasks, he can actually complete those in the same half an hour that I'm required to, you know, spend some time with my daughter. And I want to do that. I'm not saying I don't, but I think it's important to allocate that and talk about it because otherwise what happens is you end up carrying an unfair sort of load. The other thing I will say with the whiteboard, you know, every week we sit down and allocate the task and we talk about what we're carrying. And it's a really eye-opening sort of moment because we see how much each of us are doing. I think um, the important part about it, and something E. Brodsky talks about in her book, Fair Play, is that it's really important to own the task end-to-end. So it's not about the number of tasks necessarily that you have, but whether or not you take accountability from end-to-end. So, you know, for men who might be listening to this, that means like, you know, if you're taking your plate, you have to put it in the dishwasher and not load it like next to the sink. Or like as is the case with my husband, where he'll put his washing literally on the washing basket not in it and it's just little things like that you know just see the task end to end like complete the task that's sort of the main piece around the whiteboard yeah that that end to end thing is uh i remember from eve's book one example even was forgetting your kids batting helmet for practice they have to borrow one they share it they get lice the lice is your problem (laughs) that is end to end (laughs) so um There you go. So we'll, there you we'll go. just leave that one at that. So, uh, Michelle, we, we always end our interviews with what we call our love of the week, where we have our guests say something that's, you know, going great for them this week. Sarah and I can share ours first. Um, but since you are at Netflix, we thought we we're going to have to ask you about your favorite series. Um, so Sarah can go first so we can we can share share that. So my favorite recent Netflix airing is actually the two movies based on Jenny Han's books. So To All the Boys I've Loved Before, and then part two is To All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You. Total candy, totally fun to watch, good to snuggle up with your partner and enjoy those. Yeah, so we were actually really new to Netflix ourselves. I'm sorry about this. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, it, it, Stranger Things is on Netflix, right? Is that? That's yes. Right. Okay, so my my – son, my middle school age son is watching this, but I'm not entirely sure it's age appropriate, but I will just put that out there. He is loving it. Um, so how about you, Michelle? What's, what's well, your, what's well, your I'm favorite? I'm a big Glow fan, which is woman wrestling. It's brilliant. Oh, Sarah's I mean, also into that. I also love, yeah. that, was a, that was a prior love of the week. I mean, yeah. it's just the best. Um, and it's got Gina Davison, who I'm a huge fan of. So I think it's just brilliant. But um, my latest that I'm watching is The Witcher. So I'm also a Game of Thrones fan. I don't know if you've seen The Witcher, but it's brilliant. It's like basically a, a version, I suppose, of that. It's just so good. So, yeah, love it. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, Michelle. And I hope everyone will pick up your book, which is called The Fix. And thank you so is much. out this month. Thank you. All right. And now we have our listener question for the week. Sarah, do you want to read this one? Sure, because this is definitely a question for Laura, who has much more personal experience with the answer. This person writes, my question uh, has been percolating in my head for a while now, and hearing Laura's goal of building her speaking engagements encouraged me to ask. I was wondering if you and Laura could maybe talk about what factors you weigh when you make career decisions. I've been a freelance stage manager for over 15 years. Wow. And while I would, when I started, I'd take any job that was offered. When I had one child, she'd travel with me or I'd leave her at home with my husband if I had a short job. 
Often too, my parents would fly in to help. But now I have three children and the idea of going out of town for a six or 12 week stint is daunting and I haven't done it since my second was nine months old. I often wonder if I've done my career a disservice by turning down gigs that would require lengthy out of town travel. There is very limited work for me where I live. So I currently am working about 25 to 30 weeks per year. The rest of the time I stay home with the kids. I get to volunteer, go to school events, make dinner. And I enjoy having that time to be with family, but I'm still wondering if I should work more and how I weigh the value of a gig against being away from home. I'd love to hear how you guys, particularly Laura, make decisions about what work to take on. Is it affected by family events or logistics? And do you say yes and then figure the home logistics out? Or do you figure things out before you say yes? Yeah. I mean, work travel in general is obviously more challenging if you have a a bigger family, but, you know, people make it work. I mean, there's people, she says she has three children. I mean, there are people who go on deployments who have three children. So, I mean, certainly this is something that parents will, will make happen um, if, if they need to, you know, for me, it's, I'm, I'm more gone for short stints. My husband's gone for short stints too. I mean, neither of us really ever goes anywhere more than a week. So, that's kind of a different matter, I think, than than the like six week gigs that her her work would be talking about. For me, the question of whether it is worth it is a pretty straightforward one in that I speak professionally uh, to audiences. So like, are they paying my going rate? Like th- if they are, then great, it's worth it. Like that is the definition of being worth it. Uh, you know, other things like conferences that aren't compensated, I've, I've pretty much decided not to do so much anymore, just because there are a lot of conferences in the world. So it's only like the really big ones that I'm, I'm kind of worth taking on as, as networking opportunities. So I do maybe like one or two at most a year of, of those. But I would want to put out here that she shouldn't have the story in her mind that parents can't go take a six-week nine week, whatever job elsewhere. Like, yes, it will be complicated, but it can be done. So if this is something that you do want to do, I think you should figure out what would make it like worth it to you, both in terms of pay and like maybe a really, really awesome show, like your favorite show, the the one that got you into theater in the first place. Like maybe that would be a good one to start with. I'm <laughs> listening to Henry here making his noise. But yeah, you know, and and take that one on as a first gig uh, and then, you know, figure out what sort of support you need and are people on board? Like, are your parents willing to help out again? Um, maybe you could hire a little bit of extra childcare for this time. Is your husband on board with this idea? If he's like, don't assume he'll say no. I mean, maybe if you have the conversation, he'll be like, I can't envision that ever happening, in which case that's a deeper conversation then that you guys need to have. But if he doesn't say that, if he says like, yeah, actually, I thought, you know, it'd be great if you got back into this because you seem to really be missing it. Well, that's that's a different matter. And and then you guys can just figure out the logistical pieces to make it work. I mean, my guess is you will come home at some point in there. Maybe you'll come home, you know, two to three times in this. So it's not like you won't be there at all. It's just that, you know, you'll need to figure out something for the day to day. But probably you can do it. I mean, if you were gone for, say, 12 to 15 weeks a year, you know, doing two shows away from where you are, you know, that's only 25% of the time. So that, that's not huge. I, I feel like I, I just wanted to weigh in that I feel like I learned that from Laura, like really looking at the big picture of the year and how many weekends there are. And that has helped me feel better. Now, I don't work 
away from home at all on the scale that either of you were talking about. But it's made me feel better about the times I do go away because I just remember, well, if there's 52 weekends and even if I'm gone for 10 of them, which probably not, that's that's not that huge of a percentage. So really looking at that big picture and objective numbers, not just sort of your gut um, instinct or your guilt coming through. Yeah. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. Um, we've been talking with Michelle King, the author of The Fix, uh, who's a directory, director of inclusion at Netflix. Uh, we'll be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.